0: Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. Nasdaq Sylovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com/solutions/solovis. That's nasdaq.com/solutions/s o l o v i s. My guest on today's show is Matt Brown, the founder and CEO of CASE, a leading alternative investment platform on which thousands of financial advisors have invested over $12 billion in alternatives across private equity, private credit, hedge funds, and real estate. Our conversation covers Matt's background as both a financial advisor and a distributor of alternatives that collectively led to the idea behind CASE. We discussed the development of a two-sided platform, structural features for both financial advisors and managers, and challenges along the way. We then turn to the wave of capital coming from this community and what it means for investors. Lastly, we discuss Matt's perspective on leadership and the future of CASE. Please enjoy my conversation with Matt Brown. Matt, great to see you.
1: Great to be here, Ted.
0: Why don't you take me back to the path that brought you to where you are in creating CASE in the first place?
1: Yeah, it's quite a story. So I graduated with a liberal arts degree and a friend of mine who worked for Shearson Lehman Brothers told me that they were hiring and training new financial advisors. I not only didn't know what Shearson Lehman Brothers was, I didn't know what a financial advisor was, but I really needed a job. So I interviewed. I can still see it today. I, you know, walked in and it's a, oak paneled room. I met a gentleman there, older gentleman who was wearing a, a three-piece suit, had spectacles on. He looked like a, like a character right out of a kind of a Wall Street documentary. It was quite an experience and we spoke for two hours. Any topic that I could uh, regurgitate from school that was fresh, that made me sound halfway smart, desperate to keep the conversation going, Then it ended and we shook hands and I can remember walking out thinking, wow, I really don't want to be a financial advisor. That's for sure. That wasn't interesting at all. The next day, the phone rang with Shearson Lehman Brothers and they said, uh, we'd like to offer you a spot in our training program. And I instantly said, I accept. I was somewhat of an accidental financial advisor, if you want to call it that. (laughs) A, A year into my job though, I did catch up with the gentleman who interviewed me and he since became a good friend and mentor. And I asked him, why'd you hire a kid with a liberal arts background? Why didn't you go for a guy with an economics or a finance background to join your wealth management group? And I'll never actually forget his answer. He stared at me, he smiled, and he said, Matt, I can teach people math, but I can't teach people how to communicate. It really served that comment though as a lesson of life for me and something I've taken with me throughout my career, which is that really finance business Is about people it's about communication it's not just about numbers and spreadsheets that's really served me well so i started my career as a financial advisor and learned really from the seat now uh, a lot about the clients that i serve every single day about their needs and their pain points and that was an invaluable step in kind of building the foundation to be able to build the platform of case
0: how long did that unintended role last for you
1: it was five years And then the entrepreneurial itch came about and I started a company that was in the alternative investment space. That's where I got the second half of the skill of building a two-sided marketplace platform like Case, which is on the product side. And I spent about a decade in alternative asset management distribution, both domestically and internationally, and really understood what it was like to walk the streets of New York and Geneva and Singapore and explain complex investment strategies to financial advisors and private banks and institutional investors.
0: And what you learn from doing that that you didn't know in advance? That traveling a lot
1: is tiring. And if there's a better way to do it, a faster way to do it, a more efficient way to deliver information and gain access as opposed to Carrying a bag and walking into a conference room, I was game to try and figure that one out.
0: So, what was the light bulb that went off that led to, as you said, this sort of two sided platform that became Case?
1: It really was a light bulb moment. So, having the experience of wealth management, having the experience of alternative investment distribution, and being an entrepreneur twice actually by the time I had started Case, always interested in networks, always interested in scalable platforms. Very interested in businesses and models that solve problems. I was having lunch with a friend of mine who was a financial advisor at JP Morgan. And at the time, I was definitely scanning the industry, thinking about what ideas might be out there that I could sink my teeth into. And he was talking about the alternative investment platform at JP Morgan that had all the third party asset managers on it that they were able to pick from to be able to invest on behalf of their clients' capital. And he kind of went one step further and said, It's actually a huge competitive advantage because I'm able to give access to the biggest institutional alternative asset managers to all of my clients at JP Morgan, and those clients can't get that access from other firms, especially the smaller ones. Now, being in wealth management, I was very aware of the highly fragmented and growing RIA channel. And it quickly dawned on me that the RIA channel, though competing against the big wealth management firms like JP Morgan for the attention of the end client, didn't have a platform to be able to get access to alternatives. So frankly, they were playing a bit with one hand tied behind their back. So I put my arms around this David and Goliath story, the small uh, RIAs versus the big Goliath, JP Morgans of the world, and got behind the small guy and see if we could democratize access in a way that never could be done before.
0: And when did that start?
1: In earnest, we got going in 2010 and we launched the platform in 2011. So we've been live for about 10 years now.
0: So, one of those challenges anytime you try to have a two sided platform is you have to get the engagement on both sides. So, take me through that path of how you were able to go from scratch to where you are today from both sides of the platform.
1: Sure. Being an entrepreneur and building a business, you have to take a few leaps of faith and have just the utmost confidence in your own ability and the ability of your team. So some of it was clearly delivering on our value prop. Some of it was promising things, and hopefully we would be able to deliver them. So on the asset manager side, and you have to remember, this is a time where we're coming out of the global financial crisis. So all firms, regardless of industry, were somewhat looking to reinvent themselves in different ways. Some of the private equity firms and hedge fund firms may have seen some of their assets decline during the global financial crisis or advisors or investors or institutions pulling capital out, especially from some of the more liquid ones that may have been performing fine, but they just could create liquidity. So what we did is we went to the asset managers that we thought were solid in brand and track record, but possibly wanted to expand their shareholder base. And we explained this great channel of investor that has very low allocations to alternative investments, which is the RAA channel or the independent wealth channel. And we said we could deliver their products seamlessly and effectively into that market. And many of them thought it was a great idea. Interestingly, I thought in the beginning that getting the products on board asset managers would be the more complicated piece. In, in reality, it turned out to be a little easier than we thought. It was all incremental value to them. And then the other side, of the course, was getting the financial advisors to use a platform at all to access alternatives. Some financial advisors never used alternatives, so we were in the education business. Some were you know, investing in alternatives, but they needed to fill out paper subscription documents. It was very cumbersome. So how do we get them on platform? So really getting that flywheel effect started when we were delivering value to both sides of the platform. And just like when we have a good experience on Amazon or Airbnb or any two sided marketplace platform, you come back for more. And we've been able to really just create this organic flywheel effect between both sides of the market and billions of dollars a year of transactional volume is crossing our platform between these two communities for the first time. And it's quite exciting.
0: So, conceptually, it's not hard to see a value proposition of a pool of capital that's not accessing alternatives, a group of alternative managers that's not accessing a pool of capital. What did it take? In the platform to make that work?
1: There's two ways we can look at it. What's the value prop for the financial advisor? And what does it take for them to make that work? Well, initially we thought as a fintech company, why don't we just make things a little easier, a little more automated, a little more digital, and create some of that seamless workflow that takes the pain out of the process. It turns out that's only a part of the story. What it really takes is a commitment to educate financial advisors or bring scalable education to financial advisors, so they understand the funds and how to implement them in client portfolios. So we've been investing a lot into digital education. We have the state-of-the-art learning platform called Case IQ, where advisors can really interact with our platform. It's artificial intelligence powered, and the advisor really understands what the products are designed to do, the funds, and how to implement them in a the portfolio. That really became the game changer for us. Of course, the technology to make it easy, important. But as you and I both know, if we don't understand something, we're not going to do it, especially as a financial advisor. So that really got the momentum going on the investment side from the financial advisor. On the product side, as you said, well, assets started flowing across our platform in pretty enormous scale towards the asset managers. And they were finding themselves being able to increase their shareholder base and diversify their shareholder base with a completely untapped community of investors that really wanted to be their investors. And if not for the case platform, they just weren't able to get access to those types of products. So what we did was, among the many things, we onboarded their funds on our platform. We digitized the entire workflow process. We reduced the minimums from 10 or $20 million down to $100,000. We didn't increase the fees or price. And then we opened that up to the investor channel and the financial advisor side and watched the capital flow.
0: So I'm really curious how this works on both sides. So let's start with the financial advisor side from a technological perspective. Anyone who's investing in funds knows the burden of filling out all the right paperwork and getting everything done. And it tends to be done in a really analog way today. What does that look like on the platform for a financial advisor?
1: So a financial advisor, when they come into the platform, they are instantly coming into a user experience that is seamless. It's an enjoyable experience. There's moments of learning and investigation on different funds and products. When they actually want to select a fund, one or more to invest in, their end client information is already in our system. So what they're doing is they're finding the fund or funds on our platform. They are literally clicking the names of their end clients and therefore an auto population of information happens onto the subscription document. And then that sets off a workflow for purchase between the various members of the ecosystem that make fun purchasing happen. The fund administrator is a player in that, of course. The custodians that hold capital are also. So we send out, of course, the reporting and execution information that connects all those fragmented dots. So really what we're doing is we're transforming alternative investing to be a lot closer to mutual fund investing than alternative investing.
0: And then on the manager side, does each investment of $100,000 look like a line item?
1: It depends on what they prefer. More and more managers are actually interested to have end investors directly into their funds. They themselves have made the commitment, the asset managers, to go after the wealth channel and see if they can grow their shareholder base and diversify it. And part of that is to make sure that they have a business or a platform that can accept smaller investors. Now, they're smaller in check size, but they're not smaller in the net worth requirements that are still required to go into these products. And we can talk about accreditation in a second. So yes, many do prefer that. They can create different funds and vehicles to be able to accommodate that, or that those investors can go directly into the fund. The other side is those who don't prefer that. And we have the ability to bundle those investors in somewhat of an omnibus way at the case level and deliver that as a single investor. Really, we allow the asset manager to decide which way they want to have the investors approach their fund.
0: You mentioned the accreditor status. And I guess in that onboarding, the financial advisor's client can just check the box. What has to happen for the manager to understand that that individual client of the financial advisor is, is credited and eligible to invest in their fund?
1: Yeah. So the AML KYC suitability, that entire workflow is done In partnership with the advisor on the case platform, and then the asset manager overlays with whatever checks and balances they feel they need to do as well. So that's a big piece of what our platform does is to make sure that the investors, the end investors are meeting the criteria of the underlying asset management firm.
0: So as you look at today, where you've amassed billions of dollars on the platform, you have to think more and more managers would be interested in accessing that. I'm curious on the case side, how do you think about due diligence and manager selection of the next incremental manager on the platform?
1: It's a big topic, without a doubt. So, just in terms of sheer numbers, our model has always been one of really trying to bring the top in each category to the community of investors and advisors. We don't need 25 long short managers or 25 growth equity managers, but two, three, or four of the top. So there's selection. And that's a business model that served us quite well. Our approach to manager selection from a commercial standpoint takes us down one path, but in complete parallel is the relationship that we established on day one at CASE with Mercer, the global leader in operational due diligence, investment due diligence as a 300 person due diligence team globally analyzes and due diligence's thousands of funds per year. So in order for a fund to be on the case platform, in addition to the commercial aspects of joining the platform, they have to independently go through and successfully pass Mercer's investment and operational due diligence. And that rating is available on our platform for financial advisors to see.
0: I want to turn a little bit to this private wealth channel as a whole. This seems like in the last 10 years, you said from very little If you're not on, say, a JP Morgan platform to something very substantial, what are you seeing in terms of asset allocation at that financial advisor level and where this is all headed?
1: The RIA channel and the regional and broker-dealer channel has been just booming. The growth just in AUM is substantial even since when we started the platform business. More RIAs are developing there's consolidation in the space. Wirehouse advisors like the JP Morgan example I gave you many are leaving and building their own RIAs. So just the, as an overall total addressable market it's growing and quite substantial. What's interesting though however and where the opportunity is is that the RIA channel has allocation rates to alternative investments less than 2%. Their colleagues in the larger wealth management firms, the wirehouses on average have allocation rates between 10 and 15%. That's primarily due to the platform business because embedded in those big firms are the platforms that bring the ease of use, the product access, the due diligence framework. So we see that RIAs that work with Case instantly increase their alternative allocation rates across the board. They diversify across with many different funds and products. At the end of the day, this is about improving outcomes for the end clients. And alternative investments have been doing their job. The next level here that we're seeing is somewhat of the kind of displacement of what we would call traditional active management. Many believe that active management is not delivered and that alternative investments are really the new active and delivering the alpha that the advisor and therefore their end client really want.
0: How do you see this impacting what you see on the manager side as more and more money continues to come in?
1: It's had a big impact. The biggest is product innovation. There are Many well known institutional alternative asset managers who have now really reoriented their entire businesses around the wealth channel and the high net worth channel. Blackstone, of course, being one, Carlyle being another, KKR, but it's not limited just to the brand names. The multi trillion dollar opportunity, which is the allocation opportunity in independent wealth, is a bit of a wild west. It's an area where it's not fully allocated, as I mentioned. So the firms that are investing. Today, in technology and product innovation, meaning structures that are more easily and readily available for financial advisors to invest through, are going to be the winners. And certain asset managers are making great strides today.
0: Along this path, what have been the biggest challenges that you've faced in building the platform?
1: There's a challenge every day. It can be an internal challenge as a young company trying to grow a great team. There's always cycles of growing pains. In the last six months, we've doubled the size of the firm and we're about to then double over the next 12 months the resources that we need in technology, marketing, on the investment side and the platform management side. So straight down the middle, young company growing pains. Other challenges, convincing anyone to do something new is hard. So when Amazon started, they probably didn't have too hard of a time, but what were they doing? They were trying to convince you, Ted, not to go down to the local store to buy something, but to use their platform to do it instead, even though their store could have been just a mile away. Uber is trying to reinvent the way we think about taking a taxi or transportation. Airbnb, the same thing. So anything that's disruptive, you need to win the loyalty of the audience on both sides of your marketplace. So really the big challenge Isn't any kind of competition that case may have, a competitor, for example, or other competitive forces? The main event is capturing the hearts and minds of the financial advisor to stop doing business the old-fashioned way, which is find their own funds, use paperwork to execute it very manual, to operating on a platform. And so that's how we're thinking about that, really improving the overall experience to the point where it changes behavior.
0: What if you found that's been most effective? in getting that behavior change to occur?
1: It really is a combination of a couple things. We find that where people learn, they actually transact. So if you're reaching out and learning about something and you have an opportunity to follow through on that learning experience with an action, in this case, an investment, coupling those two are quite important. So we found that the learning platform, the Case IQ learning platform, as a way to introduce an advisor to alternatives or reinforce The information around alternatives to an advisor, and then marrying that in the same location of transacting. It's a very powerful combination.
0: As you grow the technology platform deeper into the financial advisor channel, I'm wondering if you've had conversations with the same type of technological issues for institutions in terms of the manual paper-intensive way of processing subscription docs and the like.
1: It's on the list. Some of the problems that CASE solves, institutions don't face. So for example, institutions don't have thousands of documents they have to process to make an allocation to a fund because they're allocating from one pool. So it's one subscription document. That said, there are many things on the CASE platform that institutions can find value in, not the least of which is our content, not the least of which is the access to certain asset managers that are on our platform. The main event, however, may not be the necessarily the ease of use of the subscription document, but there are many, many parts of the value chain that technology has modified, enhanced or improved that they will find value in. So we're looking very seriously at how we can bring the case platform to the
0: institutional world. As you get all this information and you're seeing all these flows into different managers and strategies, I'm curious what type of data you collect, and what you learn from it.
1: The longer you're in business and the more volume that's processed across the platform, the more data we have and the more history it shows. It is extremely valuable. And the way we've been using it is really in understanding what financial advisors desire to be on the platform. It's a real early indicator of interest. Imagine if you and I ran a Whole Foods together and we actually had a scientific way of knowing what we should put on the shelves before they walk in the store. So the data is showing us where advisors are interested in, what areas or strategies they're interested in, how much time they're spending learning about different strategies or funds or products, which then informs us proactively to be able to constantly keep the menu of offerings on our platform fresh and current for them to be able to select.
0: Where are the areas of biggest interest in alternatives coming from the platform today? If you
1: looked at a heat map or a flow chart over the past three or four years, and you kind of bucketed it between hedge fund strategies, private equity, private credit, and real estate, let's be kind of bold around four corners there. Every year, there's a different winner. And every year, the allocation rates oddly are around the same, but in just in different categories. So what we're seeing is this rotation If you will, of dollars based on certain trends or macro environment that we're looking at right now. What I do find to be some of the most fascinating data that we do not publish or make available is that certain financial advisor firms are constantly ahead of the game and they're often right. So, what we're able to see now on the platform is certain firms that are implementing ideas, solutions, suggestions, portfolio construction way ahead of the pack, and then the broad middle tends to follow. So insights like that allow us to really consult with them. We use a lot of peer group conversations around where the puck is going, and that informs our menu, our product structuring, our asset manager selection. So it's a very collaborative experience.
0: What's an example of one of those leading edge financial advisors movements that you would see?
1: we would see a handful of things. Early requests for content on strategies on our learning platform. I'll just use the flavor of the week or the year, crypto, for example. Who was thinking about crypto last year or the year before as a place to potentially invest? Now, crypto, interestingly, just as a category, has the highest level of engagement and interest in learning and probably the lowest level of investment. Probably doesn't surprise you. More people are interested to know what's going on in this space, but it has the fewest bets so far on a relative basis compared to the amount of education that's happening. And then in turn, what we do is we get behind thematics like that on the platform. Our research team can then begin to put together content around it. We can leverage our partner Mercer. We can start to build the menu of funds and products and make them accessible and have that entire offering come to life.
0: I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. Netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. At the right time. Where are you finding the bottlenecks of that educational curve from someone, say, a financial advisor, an independent financial advisor who hasn't used alternatives, to where do they get started and then where do they go in terms of the different investment strategies on the platform?
1: If you're a first-time user of alternatives, that's obviously often the most difficult for the case platform in terms of just time and investment. But it's something we do every single day and we're committed to it. And frankly, we feel that's just part of the mission here. You have to have a willing advisor that feels comfortable explaining alternative investment strategies to their end client. As a former financial advisor, I just know our industry doesn't talk about things to their end client that they don't understand. So for example, when we're all at dinner and the conversation of blockchain or crypto starts, you know, there's certain people at the table that just don't participate in that conversation. They just don't know what the facts are. And they feel uncomfortable. Well, if you're a financial advisor and you don't have a command of at least a basic understanding of alternative investments, you avoid it. So our ability to use scalable technology to educate, to arm the advisor, to be able to have the conversation is critical. So that's where we start with the advisor. We also know that certain products on our platform are very much easier to access, easier to understand, have a more broad appeal. Kind of if you think about it, the core and satellite approach, you probably are not going to start with a satellite strategy on a day one advisor, but more of a core strategy, more of an evergreen product. So that data comes proven again and again. We know which advisors are making their transactions for the first time on the platform. We know what products that they're buying for the first time. And that really informs us of how we think about really changing the industry, which is let's get more financial advisors accessing alternatives on a regular basis on behalf of their clients. And if we can continue to double down on that mission, I think we're doing the right thing.
0: I'm curious with all of the technology platforms that we all interact with, there's a lot of research that's gone into how those platforms gather the attention, for better, for worse, for us. As I think about the case platform from a financial advisor's perspective, how do you think about their repeat use and their engagement with the platform?
1: It's a really important topic. Engagement overall, maintaining the loyalty to the platform is something that we think a lot about and are Tech and marketing teams and digital marketing teams think a lot about. There's Facebook scary technology data, but they're watching everything. You know, you click on something, and then they only double down on that type of a topic or that content with you. That's not the case, platform. So the way we view loyalty is really understanding who our client is, and we really have two clients. We have the asset manager, and we have the financial advisor. We know the average age of a financial advisor is typically in their 50s. They didn't grow up with Robinhood or E*TRADE or any of these technology platforms or financial engine platforms. A lot of their businesses were built on trust, face to face. So, our approach has always been one of coupling the human element with the technology element. So, we have a technology platform and all the imaginable aspects that you would think would be true to that platform, but we also have a very sophisticated team in the field regionally that meet with financial advisors, speak to financial advisors, and make sure that we couple the more tech experience with the more of a concierge experience. And when you blend those two together, that's a language that a financial advisor understands and knows. Maybe in 20 years from now, the next generation of financial advisors won't want to talk to anyone ever. That could happen. I think we're seeing some of that already bear out now. The younger generations do believe that, why would I ever talk to a human and get advice when I can get advice from an algorithm and a computer? But we're not there yet.
0: I'm curious how the trends that you've seen in this channel have evolved over the last whatever year and a half during the pandemic.
1: It seems to be very much where we are that the trends of the growth of independent wealth management the trends of the desire of alternative asset managers to get into wealth management, and the rise of fintech, which are our three areas. The trends are very strong in all three. Then you overlay the regulatory environment, where the SEC is looking at ways to even improve democratization of financial products, but do it in a way that is controlled, do it in a way that is responsible. They don't want the Wild West. They want an environment where all investors have an equal opportunity to succeed. And that's a big theme. You're seeing that they're modifying some of the accreditation rules of who can invest in these products and asset management firms, not just based on a net worth, but based on an educational degree. The thesis there being just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're smart. You can be quite smart and choose a different path in life and be very capable of investing in a real estate fund or a private equity fund. So all the trends are pointing in the right direction, but it has to be done right. And it has to be done with the right belts and suspenders for an experience for a financial advisor and their end client that is thoughtful, safe, and has a positive outcome. And that's why education, due diligence frameworks, high quality product access are really the keys
0: let's say you're a large institutional allocator running a big pool of capital and you know about these financial advisors, you know it exists. What would surprise someone that sees themselves in the weeds picking managers themselves about this pool of capital?
1: I think that if you were a seasoned allocator to alternatives and you hadn't thought too much about the wealth management channel, I think you'd be blown away by the size and scale of the potential of unallocated dollars to alternative investments. It's staggering. It's trillions of dollars that are currently in process of transition away from, let's call it the ETF mutual fund land into the alternative space broadly. Whether that's hedge funds, private equity, private credit, real estate strategies, crypto strategies, all things alternatives. It is a wall of capital. And I think if I'm an allocator, I would want to know what that means to me, impact that could have on the firms and the funds and the strategies that I'm currently working with or contemplating working with. And knowing that that capital is coming, I think that I would be able to position and select strategies that may be the beneficiaries of that.
0: Matt, I want to take a slightly different tack, which is you mentioned at the top that this is effectively your third entrepreneurial venture. And I'm curious to chat with you about what you've learned in those first two, and then in the last 10 years of case, in terms of leading a business.
1: Leading a business is something that takes time to really learn. No one's born day one or shows up when they're 20 ready to run a company. It does take trial and error. Some of the lessons that I've taken with me, and this has been repeated so many different times by different business leaders, is that you really have to, I'm not going to say be comfortable with failure, but you have to really dig in when you do fail or you don't succeed and be willing to do the hard work to figure out why. And did you really put yourself in a position to win to begin with? So as we think about that as a cornerstone of the business, where can we compete successfully? Where should we not be competing? Uh, It's just not worth it. So that allocation and expectation management is quite critical. I think on the people side, there's been a lot of lessons learned over time in terms of people. We're still a relatively small business, but when you think about adding hundreds of people in a short period of time, which is what we're doing, you really have to have a few things go very right. And the number one thing is the culture piece in our interview process. Has gotten quite good. We really are looking for the men and women who are what we call the case culture fit. These are the individuals that can come into the firm, make a mark, who wanna grow, who wanna learn, who understand what it means to be internally in a competitive entrepreneurial environment, thrive off of that, and always know. And our promise back to them is that if they continue to grow and rise, we will clear the path for them to grow and rise. Inside of Case, we have just dozens and dozens of examples of individuals, men and women who have come at relatively young ages and in more entry-level positions that over time have taken on more responsibility and have found themselves in very senior positions of the firm. So we are a firm that rewards success. So giving that opportunity and communicating that this is a place where you can get that opportunity really is core to the success of our business. But look, it takes time. As an individual, myself, as a leader of the business, you have to have complete confidence in your ability to win and be willing to do everything to do it. I still work seven days a week. Well, in the old days, I used to go to the office on the weekends. Now I go to my home office on the weekends. Really a day goes by that I'm not working. It's just an unwavering commitment to be the best you can be and surround yourself by the best that you can get.
0: I'm curious how you think about the different options to grow the business. There's organic growth that comes, but even if you just think about capital allocation, the different ways that you can expand, how do you figure out where to go next?
1: So there's organic growth, there's inorganic growth, there's a time and place for both. Often there's a time and place for both at the same time. There are different verticals of the business or adjacent businesses that you can grow into. We really wanted to make sure that our core promise to our core community, we delivered on. And that was independent advisors getting access to the best alternative investment funds in an environment that they trusted. So we've spent, at least to date, our time, dollars, resources, making sure that we're delivering on that. And I think we've been rewarded for that. But as we evolve and grow, it's no secret, we recently made an announcement that we are taking a look at acquisitions now, partnerships, adjacencies to the business. And you know we are open for business in terms of scaling and organically. And I think that in this fast-moving fintech community, we have to be willing to keep every option on the table. But it started with getting our core promise correct. Many firms, I believe, want to grow too quickly or maybe grow through acquisition at the sacrifice of possibly their core promise. So we've stayed very focused. Um, and now I think we're in a spot where that machine is doing quite well, and we're ready to take a look at other opportunities.
0: When you start thinking about those adjacencies, what are the particular areas of interest that have your eye today?
1: Well, back to your question on loyalty. What other platforms are out there that advisors spend time with? There are many. There are many platforms that are fighting for the loyalty or the eyeballs of financial advisors. So one natural adjacency or partnership or acquisition Will come in the community of firms that are currently working with financial advisors and are doing well. You can call that a customer acquisition strategy. You could call that a complementary services acquisition strategy, but depending on how you look at it, it's accelerating growth through like-minded platforms. That's definitely one area. Second area is that technology is moving at light speed. And there's no reason why We shouldn't be acquirers of other businesses in technology. Maybe they're solving the mousetrap of the digitization business better than we are or in a different way than we are. We're always open. We have yet to find anyone yet that's done that, but we're constantly scouring the universe. Or just pure innovation. We need to be looking at technologies that are going to not make the old way better, but just change to a new way. I always joke, and I've said this a few times in conferences on panels, If you and I can get on an airplane with a TSA number that somehow convinces everyone that we're not bad people just by applying one time, it seems a little archaic that you have to send in a photocopy of your driver's license to invest in a Blackstone fund. So things are probably going to change in that category. I think (laughs) that there's going to be innovation there. It's going to get a heck of a lot easier for an individual to verify their net worth than going through a lot of paperwork and photocopying of documents. Those days are soon coming to an end.
0: What do you think Case looks like five or 10 years from now? I think we look
1: a lot bigger. I actually think we're doing a lot of what we're doing now, but we're just doing it better. I hammer the table that distraction oftentimes is the biggest enemy of growth. We don't have to do a lot different to continue to be growing at the pace that we're growing and be enormous. I think that this market has, like all areas of Wall Street, a handful of winners. When I look at just the wealth ecosystem, I look at the custodians. There are three or four and more coming along the way. You know, we had the Fidelities, the Schwabs, and the Pershings all competing against each other. And now Goldman Sachs wants to be a custodian for RIA assets. I look at the turnkey asset management platforms. You know, you have the asset marks and the invest nets and the brinkers and many more coming each day. It's not going to surprise me to see a handful of platforms sprout up and there'll be a handful of winners and then every day, every week, every year someone's going to put their hat in the ring and try to compete and that's what's going to make this great because you want people to come in with a more innovation, different ideas to try to upset the status quo. Today, however, we're a little bit standing alone. There's one or two other very high quality firms out there that we think are going to do great, but it's again back to my earlier comment. It's not so much about our competition today, it's about changing the behavior of an untapped marketplace.
0: All right, Matt, I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: That does not leave a lot of time, Ted, uh, outside of work and family. Uh, tennis, uh, both playing tennis and watching tennis. That's probably number one. And my great escape when I really want to unplug is movies. That's my go-to just when I want a two-hour of just blocking it all out and movies of all types. I don't focus on a genre. Braveheart and Casablanca score equally high in my world.
0: <laughs> What's your most important daily habit?
1: I start every day with an espresso and end every day with a clean inbox. I think it's very important on the latter, for me anyway, to know that I have closed out each day, even on weekends, with an empty inbox so I can start the next day at least clean. doesn't mean I've accomplished everything, but every message read all of them responded to if possible. So I can just don't get overwhelmed by email, which we all can do very, very quickly.
0: And have you come up with any tips to make that happen more readily?
1: Yeah. just I try to get back as soon as I can. I find little windows of time. I put little blocks on my calendar. Also in the pre-COVID world and now actually starting again, commuting is a great moment for that. If you're in a car or a train, make sure it has Wi-Fi. My plane rides now become great email, inbox, cleaner uppers. I do find the time, but I rarely go to bed at night with an unread message.
0: What's your biggest personal pet peeve? So
1: my biggest pet peeve, whether it's personal or business or any aspect of my life, are the professional critics, the individuals that are not in the arena, but are always firing off shots against those who are trying to do things. And we all know who they are. So- I often say, you know, challenge us, criticize, say whatever you want, but come join us for a while. Get a little dirty in the trenches of building a business and being an entrepreneur. Don't just sit in the stands and heckle because it doesn't make anyone look good. So my biggest pet peeve would be just the critics, but don't play.
0: Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life?
1: So the two people that have had the biggest impact, in the business community, I was fortunate enough to have a friendship with Steve Schwartzman, still do. Steve is, I would say, a mentor would be the wrong term because that would require us to spend time together. But through his books and through the conversations that we've been able to have, observing him build Blackstone, he's been a tremendous influence. I just very much admire the company he is admire the integrity by which he approaches the business. Steve, as an individual, as a business leader, leader of a company, has done just an outstanding job. I've been very fortunate to be able to talk to him about some of those things. The second one, and I'm not saying this just in case she listens, but my wife. I will tell you my wife for a very specific reason, aside from the obvious ones and the eye rolling that's going to happen on this podcast when everyone hears that. So family is a huge priority to me. I'm, I'm a father of four and I put family above everything. There is no way I could build a business if I didn't have such a strong partner and my wife running our family day to day. I would be drawn to being more active in the family, which would take away the time needed to build a successful company. I really view my wife in a lot of different lights, but partnership is one of them. And she's been an amazing partner and her commitment to our family has allowed me to build our business. And then I'll just say a comment on partnership overall. Nothing that's built is built alone you have to have great partners. I've been very fortunate along the journey of Case and other businesses, but especially you know, Case, to have outstanding partners. I'm not going to name them all, but you'll know who you are. And I can't thank you enough because we all can't do everything. I have as many weaknesses as strengths, and I need people to fill in the blanks.
0: Matt, what's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it?
1: Uh, that is the easiest one and the one that I will regret to my dying day. In the late 90s, one of my companies that I started invested in technology and healthcare companies, and this small, struggling technology company needed a $20 million cash infusion. It was a public company, but wanted a private placement to get over some rough times. We negotiated. I was young, in my 20s. I felt probably a little too full of myself thinking that we were in the driver's seat in the negotiation. I think I asked for too much. And the deal did not happen. That technology company on Silicon Valley was called Apple. (laughs) And the $20 million investment that I was unable to make in Apple at that time is now worth $15 billion. So lesson learned, always do a fair deal, even if you think you're in the driver's seat. Never take advantage of a situation. I was young and boy, that one stung. I may not be on this podcast by this point if that would have happened. (laughs) Surely a, a lesson learned.
0: What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: You know, my mother was very much an artist, had her PhD in art history. I grew up with a lot of the art world around me. It was probably one reason why I went and got a liberal arts education, philosophy, history, the arts, the ability to bring creativity into every equation, whether it's finance, which is traditionally not an area that people think about creativity. Was tremendous. I mean, I can remember that in my early years in every aspect of school, it was always about thinking a little more left brain than right brain. Can't thank him enough for that. I don't think on my own I would have been naturally drawn to the world of the arts and the creative side, but that was a real lesson learned there and and valued.
0: All right, Matt, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? I think the
1: life lesson that I've learned is that everyone has a story, that everyone has had tough times, whether it's the loss of a a parent or a tough time in business or whatever illness, everyone has a story and that informs and makes up who they are. And I think that if I would have been a little more, you know, understood a little more about that concept, I think empathy would have played probably a bigger role in my life and in business in my twenties and thirties. I know that's probably something a little bit difficult to do at that age. But looking now, I'm 52 years old. I think that if I knew a bit more that everyone has a story and to want to have the interest to learn about it, I think that would have served me a little better starting off in my career. So my advice to those starting off in their careers that when you meet someone, they're not just a blank canvas. Everyone has a history and a story. Understand what it is and you'll understand the person. And that will allow you to form a better relationship.
0: Great. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Dad. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show. And I thank you for it. Have a good one and see you next time.